1: verse 13 through chapter 2, verse 10, Uh, and if you're using the hymn Bible, it's on page 833. I will be reading from the NIV. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of christ a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake through him you believe in god who raised him from the dead and glorified him and so your faith and hope are in god now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers love one another deeply from the heart For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
0: Well, before we, uh, before we get into the sermon today, I just want to give you a little bit of a report on yesterday. We had a great day yesterday, maybe, uh, hopefully you guys remember that yesterday was oil change day. And uh, and I tell you what, of all of the oil change days we've done, I think this was probably the best one, uh, because not only were we able to change oil in I would I don't I guess I didn't get a final count, maybe a dozen cars, uh, something like that. Uh, but the conversations that we were able to have with people, and uh, and it's it's pretty amazing. You know, a lot of them uh, came from homeless shelters. Uh, there were a couple of them that I suspect were living in their cars um, and really had a, a great need. But even beyond just being able able to uh, give them an oil change just being able to connect with them and to be able to share the love of Jesus with them and and uh, and have the possibility of, of just further relationship uh, created all kinds of avenues uh, for not just help but also relationship and so thanks for praying for us thanks also uh, to those of you who give regularly to the benevolence fund uh, out of that benevolence fund we're able to uh, we're able to uh, not only do the oil changes but hopefully we'll be able to even pay pay for some really necessary repairs for for some of the cars that are at the point where they're kind of dangerous, and especially getting into winter, um, just really have a great need. And so we appreciate those of you who contribute regularly to the Benevolence Fund, because it enables us to be able to do ministries like that. Now, you probably know by now that um, at the end of every service, I stand up here and I say, the worship service is over, now let's go be the church. And I know that anything that you do repeatedly can start to go in one ear and out the other. It can just start to sort of blend into the scenery and you can forget about it. Or some people you don't even really know. Well, what does he mean by that? Go and be the church. Now, the intent of that statement is just to remind us that the worship service is not the whole of the church, okay? Being the church is not just what happens inside the walls of this church, but as we scatter as believers, we are still the church. We are just the church scattered. And what we do in the world is actually equally important to what we do in the sanctuary here. And that's what that's all about. But then, of course, that leaves us with the question, well, if what we do in the world is just as important as what we do in the sanctuary, then what in the world are we supposed to be doing in the world anyway? And there are lots of ways to answer that question, and, and sometimes we do it with one-word answers like discipleship and evangelism and, or, or things like good works, and all of those actually are right. They're, they're true, right, and good answers. We might even include works like uh, words like doing justice or working for the common good, and all of those would be things that, yes, we're supposed to be doing those things, but sometimes those ideas can be really vague and not give us any sense of as any individual on a given day, what exactly are we supposed to be doing? How do we do discipleship? How do we do evangelism or uh, good works or things like that? Well, today, fortunately, the passage that we're looking at from 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 give us some more specifics on what we ought to be doing, how we should be living in the world. And so if you're not there with me already, if you didn't turn there when John was there, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to start with verse 13 today. And hopefully you guys have been studying this passage. How many of you have been tracking along this week? Uh, So you've been working on it. Now, did you notice that this passage is a little bit difficult? No, maybe not. Uh, And and part of it is, is because, number one, the passage is very long. Uh, and, And so throughout the week, you're Uh, reading lots of verses and the second part of it is is they seem to like not be real uh, connected like there's not just one thought that goes through all of them now uh, of course what we're doing is is we're just working our way through the whole book of first peter And Peter is writing a letter to Christians who had been forcibly moved from their home in Rome to various cities in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And so at the very beginning of the book, he calls them God's elect exiles that are scattered, brought into captivity. And and what that does is it reminds them of the people of Israel. It starts to build their identity that you are a continuation of the people of Israel. And it builds their identity uh, by taking them back to the Babylonian exile hundreds of years before. And, uh, and last week we said that one of the most important aspects of the identity that they were to take on as believers is that they were people of the resurrection, that we are people who are identified by our belief and our trust in the resurrection. In other words, we are so focused on the resurrection and confident in our salvation that we can live with joy and peace and hope no matter what circumstances we are going through in our present time. And, and it wasn't just that their circumstances here would improve necessarily, but it was that no matter what happens here, whether good or bad, if my hope is in eternity, then what could possibly happen that could separate me from God? And today's passage actually builds on that today. Now, for those of you who are studying along this week, uh, like I said, it, 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 there's a, it, it seems to be kind of scattered. And, uh, but actually, the reason that it's so difficult is because you are reading it in English. How many of you read it in English, studied it in English? Anybody read in the original Greek Okay, I didn't think so. Neither did I. But I, I know enough just to be dangerous. And, uh, and commentators are really helpful with this too. And one of the things that they said is, is if you were able to read it in the Greek, you would see the structure a lot more clearly. Because this passage is actually made up of six separate Commands. Six separate commands and that's how Peter structures it. And so what we're going to do is, is we're going to walk through the six commands and we're going to highlight you know, what, they, uh, what he's talking about uh, to the people in the early church and then we're going to draw out some applications for ourselves. Okay, So we've got six commands. But before we get to the commands, uh, one, a couple of notes of, of study here. Okay, The first one is this is that we know that this passage is connected to last week's passage because it starts with the word therefore, right? And so when you're studying scripture, whenever you see the word therefore, you should always ask, what is it, Mark? What is it therefore? Right? I know that's not good grammar, but it is easy to remember, isn't it? Okay? What is it therefore? Because, because therefore always connects it to what happens earlier. And if you remember, it talked about being people of the resurrection. And so he's saying, in light of this, in light of being people of the resurrection, in light of being people who have a future inheritance in heaven, then you should live this way. But then before he gets into the commands, he talks about what our state of mind should be. And he uses two words or phrases there. Okay, he says this, and look what he says in verse 13. He says, with minds that are alert and fully sober. Alert and sober, those are the two words, right? Now, you can kind of understand, they're, they're kind of self-explanatory, but you can get a little richness to, to them as well uh, when you understand what they're talking about. Now, the, the first phrase or the first um, word alert is kind of a funny metaphor, at least for us it is. Uh, One of the commentators translates it literally as girding up the loins of your mind, right? (laughs) It's nice, isn't it? Like, did you know that your mind has loins? But actually what it's talking about is it's it's this metaphor that he's drawing out because people in the first century would wear robes, long flowing robes. And so if they were preparing to do something physical like running or fighting or something like that, they would have to take their robe and they would flip it up and they would tuck it into their belt and they called that girding up your loins. They were ready for action, basically. I think if if Peter were writing today, he might say something like, roll up your sleeves and get ready for action, right? Just to be ready, to physically be ready to go, except actually this is mentally or emotionally or however you want to say it. But it's that kind of, kind of image that he's talking about. The second word that he uses is the word sober. And when he uses the word sober, he's talking about being self-controlled. Uh, and, you know, the imagery of sober is actually pretty straightforward. When you think, uh, when someone is drunk, they lose their self-control. They lack judgment They lose their senses, they lose their reflexes, you know, their reflexes are dull, and so if they're driving, for instance, they can't respond as as quickly, and they're not able to function in the way that they should. And so so Peter says that you should live soberly, be alert, be ready, be ready to respond, Uh, have your mind in the condition that you are able to respond appropriately in the given situation. Okay? And I think it's pretty similar to what we call self-control. Now, we live in a society that I think oftentimes tends to downplay the idea of self-control. Uh, oftentimes they say that, well, actually, you should just go with your emotions. You should allow yourself to be, uh, to be driven by your feelings. Um, because if you, if you downplay your feelings, it's like you're repressing uh, yourself. You're repressing your true self, and you can't really be who you are. Or actually, even sometimes in Christian circles, we downplay the importance of, of self-control as well because there are people who would say, well, because we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, then it should just come naturally to us and we really shouldn't need to exercise something called self-control. But if you look all throughout the scriptures, whether it's Psalms or Proverbs or in the New Testament, over and over, scripture tells us, reminds us, be self-controlled, okay? Be in control, all right? And, and so, Peter says that that this is the attitude that you should have. This is how your mind should be as you get ready to carry out these six commands. All right, so let's go into the commands here. The first one is to set your hope on eternity. Now, that's kind of a a little bit of a paraphrase, but that's essentially what he's saying. Set your hope on eternity. Uh, And this comes from the second part of uh, of verse 13. He says, set your hope on eternity on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Okay, set your hope. Now what Peter is doing here is he's reminding them to fix their eyes on something in particular. And, and he probably wouldn't have word, had word for, for words for this, but today there's this thing that, that we call target fixation. Have you guys ever heard of target fixation? If you've ever uh, like studied motorcycle uh, driving or even horse riding or something like that, uh, you know that where you look is where your body will go, or where you will drive. And so for instance, if there's something in the middle of the road, if there's a rock or a tire or something like that, the more you fix on it, fixate on it, the more likely you are to run right into it, because your eyes will follow, or your, your body will follow where your eyes are. Uh, it's an instinctual thing. It's, just, it's kind of just the way we're wired. And so if you wanna avoid a rock or a tire or something like that, focus on the path around it and you're more likely to be able to get around it. Well, this is essentially Peter's point. Okay, he's telling them, keep your eyes fixed on the future hope because you will go where your eyes take you. Okay, you will go toward what you're focusing on. Now remember, he's writing to a group of people who had been forcibly removed uh, from their home, Moved to a town where they were resented by their neighbors. And on top of that, they they had a religion that was a minority religion that they were likely to be ridiculed for that as well. And so it would have been really easy for them to get caught up in their circumstances and wondering what in the world is going on. Where did God go? It would have been easy for them to get discouraged. You know, they would have thought about the, the words of Jesus where he says, I have come that they may have life and then think, well, this really isn't that much, this isn't that great of a life. Or maybe they could have gotten angry or belligerent and said, we don't have to put up with this. We deserve better. And they could have fixated themselves on their circumstances. Or they maybe were even tempted to give up the faith just to be able to fit in with the surrounding culture. And so Peter knew that they had this temptation to focus on their struggles. And so he told them, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes ahead. And and it doesn't cause you then to bury bury your head in the sand and to ignore the difficulties that you're having in life. But when you keep your eyes focused on the prize, on eternity, then you can endure suffering and ridicule with hope and joy as you look forward to eternity. And so he starts off by saying, uh, fix your eyes, set your hope on eternity. All right, that's command number one. Command number two, be holy. Be holy. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that's a a reference to the Old Testament. Well, that's great. Be holy. But what exactly does that mean? We don't use that language a lot in our day. Uh, and so sometimes we have a hard time understanding what it really means. Now, for some people, and this was certainly the case for me growing up, being holy was about coming up with this list or or reading in scripture a list of do's and don'ts. Okay, so do go to church, do read your Bible, and those are good things. I highly recommend them. In fact, uh, Scripture commands us to do those. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that. Or or on the negative side, uh, stay away from bad people. Don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. Don't have sex because it might lead to dancing and things like that. You know, those were all the rules that that we had growing up. And uh, now, you have to know that rules can be a part of holiness, okay? Holiness certainly does require us that we will have to live certain ways and oftentimes we can articulate those in rules that we follow. In fact, notice that Peter says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, okay? And later, Peter... Uh, quotes from the Book of Leviticus, the command that, that commanded the Israelites, "Be holy as I am holy." And if you remember, the Book of Leviticus is a rule is a is a book full of rules, right? And and so that's a description of what holiness is. But you have to understand also that with Israel, following the rules was not just a matter of proving how pious you are or being able to pass God's entrance exam to heaven. That's not really what it's about. It was to reflect the character of God as a witness to the world. If you live a particular way, and sometimes that means following certain rules, but if you live a particular way, then that enhances or is your witness to the world. And so for Israel, this had to do with the Jewish holiness code, things like Sabbath and kosher and circumcision. Uh, But for Peter, holiness really has to do with living like Jesus, living in the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus kind of picks this up on the Sermon on the Mount, and we've talked about this before, that the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is actually Jesus' statement of the law of Moses. He's giving this on the mountain, just like Moses gave it on the mountain, and he starts off the, the Sermon on the Mount by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, and then he goes through a number of different laws and says, here's how you ought to interpret this as my followers. And so very uh, late in uh, Matthew chapter 5, for instance, this is what, he, this is what Jesus says. He, he kind of takes this, be holy as I am holy, and he, he tweaks it just a little bit. And this is what he says. He says, you've heard it said, that uh, you, you have heard it, uh, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies... And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Now listen to this phrase that he ends with here. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It sounds kind of similar there, but there is a word that's, that's changed in there, okay? For Jesus, he doesn't say to be holy. I think he means that, actually. I mean, I think that's part of what he's talking about, but he doesn't use the word holy. He uses the word perfect, right? Talk about a high standard. Like, how many of you have, have done, how many of you would say, yep, I follow this, right? Anybody? No? Yeah, me neither. Uh, but, but notice that he, he says, in, in the context of saying this, he says that you do this in order to be different from the tax collectors and from the pagans. Okay? In other words, as you do this, as you live a certain way, it causes you to be separated out from the people around you. But Jesus says that their lo- it's their love that needs to go beyond loving people who love you, even to your enemies and to those who persecute you. Okay, and when they do, not only are you holy, but you are perfect. Right? Now, we don't, that, that's kind of a strange word for us because we all know nobody's perfect, right? I mean, we admit that. Um, but the word uh, that Jesus uses there is the Greek word telos. You might have heard that word before. It basically means the end goal or the purpose for which you were created. Okay? And so for Jesus, the purpose for which you were created... In fact, the purpose of the law was actually love, was perfect love. Okay? Remember when Jesus was asked in Matthew chapter 22, what is the purpose of the law? What's the most important laws? And what did he answer? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus says, when you love, and especially when you love your enemies, you are holy, you are perfect, you are like your heavenly father. Because the end goal of holiness is love. Okay? And here's the point that I want to make. Is it's very possible to make a list of do's and don'ts and follow them perfectly and still not be holy. Follow the rules, but remember that the heart of the rules is, is love, that that's the point. And when believers love that way, we begin to distinguish ourselves from the surrounding world and we become a sign that points people to God. All right? So the first one, set your hope in eternity. Second one, be holy. Third, fear God. Look at verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially... Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Reverent fear. What should we fear? Should should we fear the people around us? Should we fear society? No, actually he's talking about fearing God. Now this is another one, along with holiness, that we oftentimes don't like to talk about. You know, we like to talk about God as a loving father. We like to talk about, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus. Uh, We like to talk about grace that forgives us even when we don't deserve it. And, and all of those things are true and biblical pictures. They absolutely are. And yet, none of that does away with the fear of God. Okay. It's interesting. I think something that you kind of have to hold in tension there. Confidence in your salvation, but also fear of God. Now, there, you have to understand what fear of God means, of course. And, and I would define it this way. I would say to fear God is to show the appropriate respect for the God of the universe the appropriate respect for the god of the universe. Okay? It's, in fact, it's kind of the natural response when you come into contact with something that is so awe-inspiring, so much bigger and more powerful than yourself, and you might even think about it in terms of, and I don't know if this is a great analogy, but if you've ever stood up next to like a really tall building like the, the Willis Tower or you know, Sears Tower or whatever it is, you know, or, or just a huge building and you stood right up and you just kind of looked up at it and you just see the sheer size of it and you're just kind of filled with this sense of awe, you know, or maybe go into a cathedral, a, big cathedral that just is beautiful and, and, you know, with all of the stone and things like that in it, and that, that sense of awe that you're filled with. Okay, this is, this is kind of what it's talking about here when it comes to God. Imagine that kind of awe, only you're standing beside the creator of the universe, right, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, knows everything about you. Okay, the natural human response is to think, wow, <laughs> you know, uh, that. That's a, it's a fearful thing when you do that. It's that, that kind of sense of awe that you have in life. Now, you might ask, well, what about this thing called grace? How do we handle this? I thought that when we accepted Jesus, that we don't have to worry about judgment anymore. Well, I, yes, that, that's kind of true. But, but actually, it's, it's based on a little bit of a misunderstanding of grace. And we've talked about this before, too. You see, in the Bible, grace is unmerited, but it is not unconditional. Okay, it's unmerited. In other words, we don't deserve it. God accepts us. He offers us a place in his family, not because of what we have done, but because of his merciful character. Okay? So there's nothing we can do to earn a place in the family. But once you're in the family, God has expectations for you. right? Those of you who have children, you love your children and you love them unconditionally. You invited them into your family. And yet at the same time, you have expectations for them. And because of that, from time to time, they might even fear you. right? And it's all because you care for their good. Okay, and they should have that healthy respect of you. And just like, God, just like we have expectations for our children, God has expectations for us. And that should cause us to live in reverent fear. Now, Peter actually even goes a little bit further. And and this is kind of an interesting one. He says that we should fear God because we actually owe him our obedience. Okay, this is what he says. Look at the start of verse 18. He says, "...for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now notice there's a word that kind of gets lost in there, because that's a long paragraph. It's the word redeemed. Okay. Redeemed is, the, is a, a word that talks about bondage. It talks about slavery. And one of the things that you have to understand about biblical thought is that the Bible says that we are always enslaved to something or someone. We're always enslaved to something or someone. Okay? Now, our society, on the other hand, thinks that for instance that uh being enslaved to something like traditional morality, uh that 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 Adhering to that or obeying that is actually slavery. That when, and, and when you cast off those restraints and you live, then that's actually true freedom. When you live however you desire, that that's true freedom. Okay. But if you look at Scripture, what you find is, is that when we cast off morality, we don't actually become free. We become enslaved to our desires. Or oftentimes we become enslaved to the circumstances that were created because we are enslaved to our desires. So casting off restraint doesn't bring freedom. It actually brings slavery, only slavery to our desires. And it also says that God expects our obedience because Jesus redeemed us from slavery to our desires. He redeemed us from slavery to the powers of this world. He redeemed us from slavery and now... We have been bought by the precious blood of Jesus, and now because of that, we owe him our allegiance. We belong to him. God expects our obedience, and so we should live in in reverent fear of him. But here's the irony of it is, is that it's only in obedience to him that we are truly free. He sets us free. Set your hope in eternity, be holy, fear God, fourth, love one another. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. If Christians are to be a community that are set apart from the world, then one of the signs that we are who we say we are, followers of Jesus, is that we love one another. Look at John thirteen thirty-five sometime, and he'll say that, by this they will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. It's the greatest evidence that we are Christ's disciples, okay? And the church is the proving ground for that love, okay? Think about it. The the church is a community of redeemed people who are set free from our slavery to our desires, who are called to extend grace to one another in relationships of trust. So if Christians cannot learn to love one another within the church, then how in the world can we expect our society to do that? Okay, what kind of witness is that to the world if we are unable to love one another as redeemed, set free people of God? Okay, so how do we work that out? Peter tells us in chapter two, verse one. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. In other words, put in the work. Put in the work that it takes to love one another. All right, that's number four. Number five, Crave the word of God. Look at verse 3, uh, chapter 2, verse three, or verses 2 and 3. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, you might have this question right away because I said, crave the word of God, and it doesn't seem to say anything about the word of God in there. Well, this is one of the uh, difficulties of translation, uh, it says crave pure spiritual milk. That's what, uh, that's what most translations will say or something like it, okay? But where does it say anything about the word of God? Well, there are a couple of ways. There's a word in there and there are a couple of ways that it can be interpreted, okay? The NIV translation is kind of funny because this is what the, the Greek translation literally says. Crave the pure milk of the logikos, okay? Now, logikos uh, the vast majority of commentators will say Logikos comes from the same root as the word Logos, okay? which is oftentimes or actually always refers to either Jesus or to Scripture. And so commentators will say, well, what he's talking about is he's talking about Scripture there, crave Scripture, sc- crave the word, the, the Logos. Okay? But there are other, scri- uh, other interpreters who say, well, Logikos, that's not quite... Doesn't quite mean word, it's not the same. They have similar roots, but it's not quite the same. It really is more like spiritual. And so what these commentators would say is, is that Peter is sort of qualifying the word milk because, you know, he would hate to, you would hate to have him say, well, you should, uh, you should uh, uh, get rid of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, slander of every kind, and also drink milk. Right. And, so, and so he has to add that qualifier in there, drink spiritual, I'm talking about spiritual milk, not just milk, right? Because that would seem kind of funny, maybe in the picture Bible it would have a picture of Peter with a milk mustache and saying drink milk, okay? No malice, hypocrisy, deceit, and drink milk. Right? And so they say, well, Peter is just qualifying it there. Uh, but most of the people who interpret it actually interpret that to mean the, the word of God. And so we're on pretty good grounds to say that Peter is telling them, crave the word of God. All right. Whichever way you go with it, Peter is making it very clear that their desires that they have, that's what a craving is, it's a desire, shouldn't lead them to things like malice, deceit, envy, or slander, But their desires should be toward the Spirit and toward a hunger for the Word of God, that they should view the Word, whether the written Word of God or the grace of God, that they should view that as their source of spiritual nutrition in life. Okay, and we'll do a little more application on this in a minute. Okay, but one thing that... uh, that you might have noticed that before we get on to the next command is that Peter ends this little section here, um, I think it's still in verse 3, with a reference to a psalm, Psalm 34, 8, that says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Crave pure spiritual milk because you have tasted that the Lord is good. In other words, when you truly taste the goodness of the Lord, then your desire will always be for more and more command number 5 here's number 6 build your church into a temple of the holy spirit now, this seems kind of like a kind of a strange one here right but this we see this in verses 4 and 5 as you come to him the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by god and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, Now, Peter here is talking about the temple, but it's not just the temple. He actually just goes wild with temple language and sacrificial language, Jewish religious language. Okay, The way your translation here writes it, it doesn't really look like a command. It says, you are being built into a house. But actually, the the tense or the grammar of that actually says something like, you know, he's using this metaphor, uh, using the metaphor of the church, and he says, Christ is the cornerstone, and as believers, the church, we, the people, are to build ourselves up on the foundation of the cornerstone of Jesus into the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have to go back to the Old Testament or we can actually go to other religions because there were similar usage. Like, what is a temple for? Okay, well, uh, a temple was always the place where God dwells and where humans can go to be in God's presence. Right? Now, Peter is using the temple as a metaphor for the church, but he's not talking about the church building. He's not saying, go to the church building and God's presence is there. When he talks about the church, he's talking about the community. He's talking about the people of God as the temple. And so you don't go to a building to know God's presence, but what you do is you participate in the community of the church. And Peter actually makes that, uh, makes that connection explicit later in verse 9 when he writes this. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. You see, the role of the church community in the world is to be the community where heaven touches earth. Okay, Peter is, is wrapping up this section by saying that as the people of God, that we bear witness to the presence of God that brings light into a dark world. And for all of the things the church does, this is our ultimate purpose. And so when we gather together and we sing, we're not just singing because we enjoy it, but God inhabits the praises of his people, that the presence of God actually participates in our praises when we have small groups or kids' park or youth group. Okay? It's not just about learning, uh, uh, about, learning about God. Okay? It, it's, it is that. Okay? But it's the place where we are reminded that God's grace has been offered to us and we have an inheritance that awaits and, and, and we have responsibility to be mediators of God to the world as priests, as a holy nation, as the temple. To be the go-between between God and the world around us. And when as the church we go out and we serve, we bear witness in both word and deed to the grace of God that invites people into relationship with him. Well, I've already kind of gotten into application, or you, maybe you've started to, to draw on some application points there, and there's a lot of things that we could draw, and there, we could take any one of these six points and just go to town on them, okay? But I want to just focus on three things today, and they come pretty much directly from these points, but I want to kind of draw them out for life today as well, okay? The first one is this, is that we need to be people who set our hope on eternity, now, I know this was an application from last week, but Peter is really emphasizing this, that we need to be people of the resurrection. And so we have to be people who remember that one day we will all see Jesus face to face. We will stand before God. And right now, we have a lot of struggle in this life. Okay? A lot of we, there's a lot of hard things that happen. Okay? Many people are anxious, about what's going on in our world right now. I've heard the words impending societal collapse more than once in the last few months, okay? Um, As believers, we seem to be living in in a society that seems to be moving more and more away from Jesus as Lord rather than toward it, okay? Although, you know, you never know how trends continue. Maybe things will turn around. Maybe the church will be effective in, uh, in mediating God to the world, but it doesn't seem to be happening right now. And along with all of these things, we're all dealing with the normal struggles of everyday life. Trying to pay the bills, you know, financial struggles, marriage, parenting, health, going through difficult seasons of life. You know, there is so much stuff that we can stress about in this life. And it's oftentimes easy to be fixated on. It's easy to obsess about these things. And it's also easy for us to search for answers in worldly things and worldly systems and philosophies and newest diet plans or fads or in technology. It's easy for us to focus on all of those things or sometimes we just numb ourselves. We just try to forget about our worries through things like technology or entertainment or busyness or even substances. But Peter says... To remember the principle of target fixation, that the more you focus on these struggles, the more they take you right into them. But setting your hope on your future inheritance can put all of these struggles in their proper place. They're real. They're still struggles. They're still things that we have to deal with. We don't want to bury our head in the sand. okay? But because of our future hope, we can deal with them. We can endure them with an alert and a sober mind, as, Hebrew tells us, as Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Okay? So deal with the struggles that you have, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on eternity. Okay? Second, crave the word of God. Crave the word of God. We live in a world that is in desperate need of wisdom. You know, we, have, we have a lot of smart people around that are not very wise. And uh, and I mentioned earlier that we live in a society that believes, for instance, in throwing off the weight of morality, throwing off self-control, and that when we do that, that that brings true freedom. But eventually, people only find themselves to be slaves to their desires. We also live in a world that looks to the latest Twitter trend or pop theology for truth. We scour the internet for wisdom. We trust celebrities to tell us the truth about the good life. That's kind of where our society goes. But what all of these sources have in common is that they are short-sighted and temporary at best. And so if you want true wisdom, if you want wisdom that brings true freedom, then spend more time taking in the word of God than you do any of these other things. In fact, Peter talks about this too. He writes this in, in verse 24, chapter 1, verse 24. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. We receive true wisdom when we come to the point of craving the truth of Scripture. When we thirst for it like cold water in a dry desert. So when Peter quotes Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good, ultimately, that's the kind of motion, motivation that God wants for us to be able to dig into his word, and that's the kind of motion that, uh, motivation that's sustainable in the long haul, to see God's goodness and even the good things that obedience to God's word brings. Okay. Crave the word of God. Finally, and this is one that, that takes some explaining because it, it sounds kind of funny, but we need to understand that we are all stones in a temple. We are all stones in a temple, okay? See, all throughout this letter, and, and you're going to see this. You're, you might get tired of You're probably already tired of hearing me talk about this, right? But we are not just solitary Christians. We are a part of a body. We are part of a temple, part of a community. Okay? But the community is not just an earthly community. It's not just some social thing that we have constructed. It's, a, it's spiritual. It's eternal. And we have a task to build ourselves into the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now think about that for a minute. Okay? Look around at the, at the people in here. Look around at the, at the church community here. And understand that at our core, this community is a place where God, where heaven interacts with earth. Okay? That's what we are to be. We are to, how we live our lives bears witness to the character of God and the truth of the gospel. Okay? We are mediators of God to the world. And of course, also, we can, uh, we can always um, pray for the world on behalf of God as well. We are the community that's called to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful life. And we do that in the way we live. We do that when we worship together with all of our hearts. We do that in the way we live our lives of virtue, integrity, self-control. We do that in the way that we speak. We do that in the way that we interact with one another. We do that in the way that we love and serve our neighbors. We do that when we bear witness to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what it means to be the church. And we are all bricks in the building, every one of us. Okay, you're a stone. Christ is the cornerstone, of course, and so we build our life on him. And this is how we declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful life. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. We thank you for the way it illuminates how we ought to live. And we thank you for these uh, six commands that you gave us today. And Lord, I pray that that you would give us the strength through the power of your Holy Spirit to live how you have called us to live, to organize our lives both individually and as a church community um, around these things. That we would see that by how we live lives of virtue, integrity, and self-control, lives of serving others, loving our neighbors, loving one another, that as we do this, we bear witness to your goodness and to your lordship. And so, Lord, as we reflect on this, as we reflect on this passage, and we try to draw out applications for ourselves as individuals, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and insight, give us courage and the strength to follow through, to be the people, the individuals, and the community that you have called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.